I'm very lucky today to have Justice Tankavi, who's come over from Cambridge University, um, where he has expertise in quite a lot of things, I think. Heritage criminology, sentencing in Ghana, the death penalty in Ghana, which is how I know his work, and also um, has done many years of research on the area of policing, and in particular, police legitimacy. And uh, that's what he's going to talk about today. So, welcome to Oxford, welcome to Oxford Criminology. Oh, thank you very much. Um, good afternoon to everyone, and thank you uh, to Caroline and to Ian for the opportunity to be here. Um, I just would like in this seminar briefly to talk about one of my areas of research, which is police legitimacy. Uh, essentially, my argument is to look at the various ways that we could improve the current conceptualization uh, of uh, the concept. All right, if you, uh, Google has got this interesting uh, software it calls uh, Ingram Viewer, which allows you to track trends in the use of particular words and phrases. They've managed to uh, compile, they say, about 200 million books from about uh, the 16th century or so to 2008. So when you put in particular phrases, it tells you the trends uh, over time. Of course, we can fit the entire period here. So we look between the period 1980 to 2008, and what we see uh, is an interesting trend that until about the early 1990s, uh, much of the emphasis appears to have been on criminal, uh, criminal deterrence. And we see quite a sudden reflection point here that legitimacy has become much more uh, common in uh, the books that at least they, they looked at. Of course, this doesn't include journals, so it's not really a, a great, um, no hard conclusions can be drawn. And interestingly, if you even change this to caps, the trend changes the other way around. So uh, it's just indicative rather than anything. If you put procedure justice in, into it, uh, you will see quite a marked gap between even references to legitimacy and criminal deterrence and uh, procedure justice uh, in the relevant uh, text. Much of that uh, change in the fortunes of legitimacy, so to speak, I think can be attributed to Tom Tyler's work uh, in the U.S. originally with his book, uh, Why People Obey the Law. And he later developed this model that Essentially, the reasons people obey the law is because they think of the law or of legal authorities as being legitimate. And perceptions of legitimacy are based on experiences of fair treatment uh, from legal authorities. So it is not the outcomes or the favorable outcomes that people receive from legal authorities, but how fairly they think they have been treated uh, by those uh, relevant authorities. And he argues that fair treatment encourages people to think of police as being legitimate, which then feeds into uh, an attitude of compliance and support for police <coughs> authorities. There is also the additional argument here that fair treatment encourages immediate decision acceptance and long-term compliance uh, with the law. Of course, the evidence on long-term compliance is uh, quite uh, weak. Okay. So these are the key findings from the uh, relevant literature that when 
police forces or legal authorities are considered to be legitimate, we should expect more compliance, more cooperation, greater satisfaction, and even less support for vigilante violence uh, across the different communities. And a number of, I think, both police forces and even at the governmental level have taken notice of this, uh, these findings from the literature. And more recently, uh, the U.S. president has a task force <coughs> following the incidents in Ferguson to look into policing in the U.S. And the interim report has as its first pillar the need for police forces to cultivate legitimacy and procedure justice, both within police institutions and in their relations with uh, relevant communities. So it seems to me that um, on the evidence, uh, this is a powerful notion that one needs to take uh, seriously. Um, but an interesting observation from the literature is the various different ways that legitimacy has been measured. So I said earlier that if you look at the literature, one of the impressions you get, or one of the evidences that legitimacy encourages cooperation with police forces. But that conclusion uh, hides a lot of things, not least the variations in the measurement of the concept. So if to me legitimacy is trust and confidence, as some few studies have done, and others are saying it's obligation to obey, then the conclusions drawn are a little bit shaky in that respect because we are not referring to the same thing. Unless we argue that obligation to obey and trust and confidence are one and the same, which I think will be a difficult argument to sustain. And there's a price, of course, to this kind of conceptual ambiguity, as Blumer would put it. One is that it doesn't really advance our theoretical understanding of the concept uh, under discussion. And the problem is not resolved simply by applying <coughs> different complex or advanced statistical analysis uh, to the issue. If, for example, as I would argue, trust and obligation <coughs> are different concepts from legitimacy, then it doesn't really matter the level of sophistication in our analysis of trust and obligation. It wouldn't resolve uh, the issue. So Blimmer tells us that simply devising new technical instruments more or less dances around uh, the issue uh, in hand. I'm arguing that there are at least two limitations in the current literature. Uh, the first is what I've already alluded to, that there's a tendency to reduce legitimacy to trust and obligation uh, to obey, feelings of obligation to obey legal authorities. And secondly, there is much of the evidence is based on community surveys and interviews. While that is useful, and I have done a lot of that work and I continue to do so, I think an exclusive focus on that limits the explanatory uh, value of the concept. And I will try to uh, show that later uh, in the talk. So first of all, let's start with from dictionaries. Uh, some have made the argument that dictionary definitions should not guide criminological analysis. Fine, I understand. 
but at least it's a starting point to see what in ordinary usage of the term uh, we mean by legitimacy. And here, of course, being in Oxford, uh, Oxford English Dictionary uh, gives us some of these definitions. One, that when we talk about legitimacy, we're talking about condition of being lawful or being in accordance with a principle. And we could read a principle here to mean maybe values or norms within particular uh, communities. Uh, that again is uh, emphasized in the second uh, definition. So here there is no references to obligation to obey as such. There's no reference to trust. And you can go through the list of definitions that Oxford University uh, Press provides. And I, you can trust me on this. There's no references to any of those, uh, either of those concepts. Webster English Dictionary makes a similar point that when we talk about legitimacy in the ordinary meaning of the term, we are talking about law, we are talking about accepted rules and standards, which again, what norms are. Norms are the accepted rules or standards that are supposed to guide behavior in particular uh, situations. Secondly, on the issue of trust, Um, I think there's no doubt that, or at least one could make the argument that trust and legitimacy are perhaps intimately related. But they seem to me to be quite different concepts. Um, That we could easily think of situations where people trust legal institutions but do not consider those institutions to be legitimate. So, for example... And I don't know how to drive, but if I did, and I had an accident and had to make an insurance claim, a requirement might be that I produce a police report. And imagine that I thought of the Oxford or Cambridge police as being deeply illegitimate. That still will not prevent me from going to them if I really wanted to claim my insurance, to go to them for the relevant uh, documentation to do that. Now, I might trust them to provide me the services that I require without necessarily thinking of them as being legitimate in that respect. Okay. And one, of course, could also think of legitimacy as being one of the conditions that allow people to be more trusting of institutions, that if I thought an institution was legitimate, I might be more inclined to trust it uh, than if I didn't. I think so. Okay. So if we look at the definitions of trust and, and legitimacy, um, it's very hard to see how we could make one do the job of the other, so, so, so to speak. Okay. So then, uh, my argument that if those two or three concepts are, are different, uh, and I'm sure we have the chance to, to get into this uh, further, then there's a need for us to probably chart a different course, to look beyond measuring legitimacy in terms of obligation to obey and trust. Of course, one of the arguments that were made originally was that feelings of obligation to obey legal institutions might be the result of fear, might be the result of what uh, Iman Karabin calls in the prisons context, drawing on marks, of dull compulsion, 
that people have faced with structural situations where they believe they have no option but to obey legal institutions. Or if we think about uh, James Scott's distinction between public and hidden transcripts in relation to power, uh, that the power situation is so stacked against some individuals that at least when you, when you ask the question, do you feel an obligation to obey those institutions, people might immediately say yes without necessarily uh, that obligation being normatively based. But even if we establish that the obligation we are referring to is not one that is based on fear, it's not one that is based on dull compulsion, but it is, quote-unquote, a genuine uh, feelings of obligation to obey legal institutions. That does not itself suggest that we have resolved the problem of uh, conflation of the concepts. Okay. The argument I will make is that legitimacy is what encourages people to feel an obligation to obey legal institutions, which then might translate into actual behavioral uh, uh, outcomes. Okay. One of the reasons, not uh, the only. <coughs> in charting that different course, of course, uh, our starting point in the social sciences is always Max Weber. And he uh, makes the point that um, legitimacy is the most stable basis for uh, power, for authority, and therefore conjectures that every system of authority seeks to cultivate legitimacy uh, for itself. And we know how he goes on to talk about the different grounds on which legitimacy might be uh, uh, nurtured or cultivated, resulting in his threefold uh, typology <coughs> of traditional, uh, charismatic, and legal rational uh, authority. Okay. So, the definition I will start with is the definition that David Beetham. Uh, offers us more recently, which is that when we talk about legitimacy, we are talking about the recognition of the right to govern, essentially. And that this recognition uh, involves at least two parties, and he says a third party whose recognition might be important in that respect. And later on, towards the end of the, of the talk, um, I will come back to this issue of a third party, especially when we make the distinction between what some call empirical legitimacy and normative legitimacy. What happens within particular societies and what some suprastate uh, standards or uh, requirements might be. But at least this is the definition that we uh, want to uh, go with. And, and these, I think, are the three really important features of, of it. Um, that legitimacy is essentially normative in the sense that, as someone argues, it is deeply social. It's based on the norms, the values within particular contexts. And regardless of what an individual power holder might believe, as someone says, even though one might jump up and down claiming to be legitimate, uh, it doesn't really produce much recognition if it is not linked to the norms and values within the particular uh, society. Secondly, that legitimacy is not a binary either-or kind of concept. It's a, it's a conditional, it's something that happens as a matter of degree, 
that there's more or less of it rather than um, nothing at all. And that often is because you are dealing with not one particular audience, but a multiplicity of audiences. So if you want to provide an overall scorecard for a legitimate police institution, it's quite unlikely that all these different audiences would have thought of the police as being somehow illegitimate. Not even what the Ferguson Police Department does. Would you imagine that everybody would think of them as being illegitimate? Uh, third, uh, is that legitimacy extends both to power holders and to their audiences. And the point here is that it is not for the recognition of power. It is not sufficient to just rely on what power audiences think. An equally important issue, which Max Weber emphasized, was the need for power holders themselves to believe in, their, in the rightness of their positions and in their authority. We are not talking here about police officers, for example, perceptions of the legitimacy of the police department. No, we are talking about the individual officers' personal legitimacy in, in those circumstances. And uh, uh, part of the argument here then is that it's useful for us to think of legitimacy as a continuous dialogue of a claim, a constant claim and response between power holders and their different audiences. They are very, the multiple audiences uh, within that particular society. The power holders might begin with a claim. So, for example, we might think that uh, stop and search is a useful tool in a particular uh, uh, police area, and we start to implement uh, or practice this particular strategy. And we might have a claim or a response from the audiences, either at the national level or during everyday encounters with the police uh, forces. And police officers might revise the claim uh, in future uh, transactions. Of course, that depends on the context. If it's such a political context that power holders think they are not accountable to uh, uh, power subjects or audiences, then this might not apply. Okay, so what is it then that power holders or audiences come to this dialogue? What is it that they expect from uh, power holders? What are the conditions that allow people to ascribe or to recognize power as being legitimate? Um, I recently come across work by uh, Bernard Williams, and he suggests that uh, almost in every society, there is what he called the first basic political uh, question, which is, how do we create order? How do we create the conditions that allow for trusts, that allow for cooperation among uh, uh, individuals? And that meeting power holders that meet what he calls basic legitimation demands are the power holders that will be recognized as being uh, legitimate. So we might think of it this way, a kind of imaginary dialogue. So we are in Cambridge, there's complete chaos and disorder, and someone says, I can bring, I can establish order. I can create the conditions that allow us to go about our various uh, uh, routines without hindrance. And we say, okay, we will recognize your authority. We recognize your power to do that. 
if you are able to meet certain basic legitimation demands, okay, with certain some boundaries within which you are supposed to, or conditions for which you are supposed to uh, exercise that authority. And Williams argues that meeting those basic legitimation demands is what distinguishes a legitimate state, a legitimate system of domination from an illegitimate uh, uh, one. And he makes the point further, which I find very interesting, that the satisfaction of these basic legitimation demands, the nature of these basic legitimation demands varies historically. So they haven't always been a kind of liberal uh, conditions or liberal demands. And he goes on further to say that now and, 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 and today, uh, it seems that liberal uh, demands are the only ones that are acceptable and others are not welcome. But I think the fundamental point he makes here is how the conditions for legitimacy, the grounds on which people ascribe legitimacy to institutions vary across societies. And I think that's an important point because if we take legitimacy as simply obligation to obey, then what we are suggesting is that in almost every society, especially when we use community surveys, it's a question of how strongly people agree or disagree with this item, rather than allowing for the community to, to tell us what the conditions for legitimacy are within those specific uh, instances. And that links to a further point that Beetham uh, made, which is that legitimacy is always a, a question of context that as sociologists, as social scientists, we know that societies differ. And as I said earlier, norms, values are central to the question of legitimacy. And to the extent that values and beliefs vary across different societies, we should expect that uh, the nature of legitimacy would accordingly uh, uh, vary. But he makes the point, in spite of that, that it is still possible to identify what he calls underlying structure of legitimacy, something that is common across all different communities, even if the substantive nature of those elements will vary uh, accordingly. So uh, it's a notion that is similar to what, for example, Bloomer tells us about what he calls sensitizing concepts, that social <laughs> concepts are sensitizing concepts in the sense that they manifest themselves differently in different social contexts. It's a similar notion uh, here. So in a paper that uh, I published with Tony Buttons, we argued that um, these might be some of the legitimation demands that people make of power, people make of legal institutions, that these are the demands when they, they meet would distinguish them from uh, illegitimate uh, state institutions. We're not, of course, arguing that this is exhaustive. We're saying this at least, just a conjecture, a hypothesis about what you might find across uh, different uh, societies as being the grounds for uh, legitimacy. Okay. Let's look at this further. Uh, of course, the question of lawfulness, that uh, one of the basic, or what we might say, BLD, one of the BLDs will be that power be seen as being consistent with the rules as they currently operate in 
in, in each society. And we will come later when we look at the example of um, some cases recently to see how this might fit what we are talking about. But this will seem self-explanatory. That the source of power, if police say they have the power to do stop and search, the question is, where does that power come from? Is it consistent with the law as currently uh, 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 promulgated? And the nature that the power, even if it were consistent with the law, how the power is exercised needs also to conform uh, with the rules. Uh, of course, police corruption, <coughs> uh, police criminality will be instances of breach of the rules. Uh, or police listening into people's conversations without the requisite uh, legal uh, um, permit will be uh, instances of that. But of course, we are told from uh, social legal studies that there is always a gap between the law and the everyday norms and or normative consciousness of, of communities. And that is a mistake for us to think, as uh, Tamanaha argues, against what he called the mirror thesis, that the law necessarily reflects the values of communities. That if we take, for example, the case of uh, post-colonial societies is one in point. Even in uh, Western democratic uh, multicultural societies, it's very hard to argue that no, uh, laws necessarily reflect uh, prevailing values uh, as such. So Bethan makes the point that um, law cannot justify itself by reference to itself. It needs some sort of external uh, reference to the values within that particular community in order to uh, be legitimate. And he talks about shared values within communities, a notion that is similar to what uh, John Jackson calls moral alignment, that power holders and their audiences share um, common value systems because those value systems then provide, if you like, the fountain for justifying power, for justifying uh, the law. Okay. But of course, just talking about shared values on moral alignment, while that general notion is useful, it is still possible for us to go beyond that, to speculate at least, to hypothesize about specific values that might be uh, important in different uh, cultural contexts. So, for example, uh, John Dan, in his book Setting the People Free, uh, tells us that the reason democracy is so appealing or has won the battle, as he put it, is because of the notion of equality. That that's a notion that almost every person uh, finds uh, attractive. So I'm suggesting that, or we suggest that, the first, or at least one of the specific uh, shared values is that of distributive justice. To what extent does power allocate resources in a way that is not discriminatory? in a way that is fair across different competing groups within a particular society. Is it ethnic differences? Is it social class? Is it political uh, affiliation or religious uh, concerns? That at least in liberal democratic societies, 
we would expect that the notion that the individual has dignity, has respect, and that are entitled to these, and that it is unfair to discriminate against that individual on the basis of his particular characteristics is one that will be consistent uh, uh, with it. So we can look at it in terms of how police allocate their resources across different communities, different uh, social groups. But of course, for us, for those who are also interested in perceptual studies, it's also, at least in the literature, often measured as perceptions of the fairness of outcomes that people receive. So uh, the fines, the decision to arrest, the decision to stop and search, uh, are examples of uh, the outcomes that people might perceive to be fair or not. But essentially, it comes down to the issue of being over-policed, under-protected, for example. Um, and there's a lot in this area uh, consistent with uh, Ian's notion of policing as a public good, uh, for example. So, of course, one of the contentious areas where uh, distributive justice, uh, or at least injustice, uh, arises the use of stop and search. And always when you look at the statistics, uh, at least on the face of it, uh, appear to suggest that there is some uh, injustice in the distribution of these um, pains, if you like, from, from power, the punishment from, from, from power, so to speak. The second and therefore the third legitimation demand is what we know uh, from the literature quite extensively. It's the notion of procedural justice, um, defined essentially as perceived fairness of, out, uh, of treatment. Um, and Tyler speaks or writes extensively about issues that relate to accountability in the sense of police officers having to give a reason for their decisions. So when people have interactions with the police, the research suggests, and they're making a judgment about whether the processes have been fair, one of two dimensions are implicated in that. One is the quality of decision-making. And the elements of the quality of decision-making are the perceptions of reasons being given for a particular course of action. So if I'm being arrested... Uh, why is that the case? It is not the issue that um, giving the reason means I won't be arrested. I will be anyway, but it's still giving the reason for that particular action. Whether people ha are encouraged, in fact, to, as it were, put across their side of the story, their input in the decision-making uh, process. Uh, the notion that is used extensively in the literature is that of neutrality, although some argue that impartiality is to be uh, preferred because neutrality is a bit more of a passive uh, uh, notion. And of course the issue of quality of, uh, of treatment, respect, dignity, recognition uh, for the individual. But as I will suggest later, that even when we think about this uh, in terms of not perceptual studies or community surveys, it is still possible to to think about mechanisms of accountability, all these oversight uh, institutions that we have. Uh, and here I'm referring to the paper Ian wrote with uh, Richard Sparks, uh, drawing on Rosan Vallon's work uh, on democratic uh, legitimation. Participation 
and, and, and the others. So, for example, this is a, uh, uh, a depiction of the <laughs> uh, kind of recognition, the kind of respect that people get from the New York police uh, when they do their stop and, and, and search. And last year, there was a really interesting case where the New York police went on Twitter telling people, if you've got photographs of us, uh, share it with us. And people began to share the, a really outrageous photographs about police uh, high-handedness. And suddenly the, the account was taken down. They didn't want to, <laughs> to know about this. But it's an instance of, of, of this. That, um, as I said, at least in some political cultures, the notion that people are entitled to uh, respectful, dignified uh, treatment, recognition of them as being human, is an important specific value and legitimation demand. So essentially, the demand we will make of police forces is that, yes, you've got the right to use stop and search powers, but we demand that you do so in a way that recognizes us as human beings, not as uh, the other uh, party there. Okay. The fourth legitimation demand, and therefore, the, if you like, you say the the third specific value. And this is a bit more contentious because in the literature on legitimacy, we often treat effectiveness as a purely instrumental notion. It's got nothing to do with the more normative concept of uh, legitimacy. But actually, if you go back to uh, Bernard uh, Williams's point, which is that we have a political question, and that question is how can we create the conditions for cooperation, the conditions for trust, how can we maintain order within our communities? And you said, I can do that. Then it follows that the extent to which you are able to execute that duty will be not purely an instrumental uh, issue. It's a normative requirement. Police forces are not vested with the power they have because we want them to treat us fairly. I think we can do that amongst ourselves without the police getting involved. Um, not that we want them to distribute punishment and, well, they don't do rewards, they just distribute punishments and maybe sometimes a bit of protection. But it seems to me that the effectiveness of the police in contributing to solving that original political question will be one of the normative requirements. Uh, or one of the legitimation demands people make of those in power. And Robert Peel tells, uh, tells us initially that the reason for the police is that we wanted someone, some authority, which could contribute <coughs> to preventing crime and disorder in local communities. Of course, we know today that the police just don't do crime prevention and, and, and disorder. They do a lot of other social uh, uh, what they consider to be social services. Uh, but the point is that this is the basic reason for, for the police. And that is really the question about legitimacy. Legitimacy is about why does this institution have the right to exist and to exercise these kind of powers? And it seems to me that, in fact, our starting point should always be the extent to which that institution demonstrates effectiveness, in this case the police, in, in contributing to that uh, resolution of that question. But of course, 
we won't stop there. We won't be hops, Thomas Hobbes, and stop at that particular answer that effectiveness is sufficient to addressing that question. And Williams tries to defend Hobbes here by arguing that, um, one, the conditions in which Hobbes was writing were so dire that he thought the state or the person who is able to create or to solve that particular uh, first question would have done enough to warrant legitimacy without the need for uh, uh, anything extra. But of course, it doesn't mean he supports terror because that is the, the, the very issue that he was trying to, uh, to resolve. Okay. So if we take that together, a very simple model, uh, unlike the one that we started with, is that when we talk about legitimacy as a multi-dimensional concept, these are at least four of its elements that we can think about. Um, as I said, there's, there's scope for more, depending even on the methodological approach that we have. <coughs> and that it is this, when institutions or when the police meet these legitimation demands, that creates the feeling of obligation to obey the police, which might then translate into actual behavioral uh, uh, outcomes. Okay. Uh, or, of course, they could have a direct impact. The very fact that you consider what the police do to be lawful might encourage you to, to want to obey the law or otherwise. Uh, this is a quote from Hershey, uh, the point I should have made earlier, that legitimacy is not new to criminology. If you go back to Travis Hershey's Causes of Delinquency, uh, his notion of uh, belief and even attachment has a lot of references to uh, legitimacy uh, in it. What we often do in, in cases like this is that when we have uh, come up with this hypothesis about uh, the dimensions of legitimacy, we could use uh, confirmatory factor analysis to see whether the data fits this particular model. Um, you could try this. I've done it in a paper previously using data from London, which suggests that that's the case. This is a, a paper that I'm writing with colleagues from the U.S., uh, using uh, samples from Ghana and, and the U.S., suggesting that, yes, the model might fit. But that is not really uh, my uh, concern uh, here. Uh, if you look at the literature from prisons, uh, this is Alison Liblin's work on the moral performances of prisons. What she distinguishes as being poor performing and good performing prisons can actually be read as being less or more legitimate uh, prisons. And you can see the things that uh, the qualities of such prisons. Yes, there is no explicit references to lawfulness in this case, but respect, poor relations, or respect and good relationships are essentially things to do with procedure justice in, in some respect. Uh, <coughs> fairness here could be read in terms of both procedure and distributive uh, aspect. Security, we are talking about effectiveness uh, uh, within prisons. But we can move beyond the perceptual uh, studies to look at um, <coughs> cases like this. So um, one of the reasons I think it's helpful to not only continue to do 
uh, interviews and survey-based data uh, studies, but also to use, um, quote-unquote, other sources of data, uh, or I'll come back to that later. But also, I think, to move beyond the obligation to obey notion, because this is a particular aspect of public policy. Um, how are we going to analyze this particular instance by relying on uh, obligation to obey? What's the judgment that we're going to make in the activities of GCHQ and the NSA if we're saying that legitimacy has is about obligation to obey? Okay. We are told the NSA has gone and done something really terrible, so we are interested in analyzing the legitimacy of what they have done. How, how do we go about this if, our, if our, we rely almost exclusively on an obligation? And we see that in the discussion that followed, in the questions that people ask about the NSA's activities, uh, read the presidential report, the commission into, into uh, what the NSA did. And there were questions about whether their activities were constitutional. Right? Did Congress know about the actions of the NSA? It's a question of lawfulness. Right? Is this lawful? Um, and when it became clear that the Intelligence Select Committee or so, at least some members, knew about this, that somehow if you read a small print in the Patriot Act, there was somewhere there that suggested that they could do what they were, they were doing. The discussion move quickly to, okay, where's the evidence that this is effective? Show us the evidence that this particular uh, um, strategy has prevented terrorism. And again, if you read the report, it's very, very hard to, that's the conclusion they come to. There is no evidence to suggest that this uh, uh, listening into people's uh, conversations and all those other things that we read about uh, contributed in any way to preventing uh, attacks. And, uh, of course, the New York Times tells us this was ineffective and constitutionally dangerous. We are told that it's an activity that violates fundamental rights to privacy. Okay. So this is an issue, in part, about procedural justice. Because, remember, we said a key element of it is recognition, respect for that particular uh, uh, individual. Uh, some also suggested, and in fact, the presidential report uh, uh, says that there's a tendency that this could be used to target people with particular political or religious views, a concern about distributive injustice in the use of this particular uh, tool or uh, issue. So, this is a legitimacy assessment of the actions of the NSA. And questions about whether we then have an obligation to obey that institution are secondary to this. We first have to establish, in part, did the NSA act legitimately? We have tried to answer that by references to this. If it was an institution like the police that we deal with on a day-to-day basis, uh, the NSA doesn't care whether you feel an obligation to obey it or not because it doesn't require it. They will listen anyway. We will do all the things that they wanted to do anyway. But imagine this was a police force, and we are asking these basic questions. The question then about whether we have an obligation to obey arises as consequent to this. It's a sequel to this particular uh, uh, issue, rather than uh, being one and the same. 
Um, and I think that really broadens our analytical framework, for example, because one might wonder, why really would the NSA do this? Didn't they know that people would be rather outraged by some of these uh, issues? I said earlier that powerholder legitimacy is an important aspect of it. So let's imagine that the NSA thought about it very carefully, and they were really confident that this is a legitimate action to undertake, right? So high, medium, low legitimacy. Obviously, the public have responded, at least some aspects of the public, those who are really concerned about uh, some of the things that they were doing, by saying, no, we think of this as being illegitimate action. And it's the reason this has set in motion various attempts to try to reform what the NSA does. Okay. So uh, I could come back to this later if you, you wish. But also, let's take another example. Really, I think most of us will know about Stephen Lawrence. Um, uh, it's a particular uh, uh, the murder of this young man. The police have done their investigations. I'm sure they were really uh, confident that what they had done was, was uh, appropriate, including um, sending undercover officers uh, to surveil the victims' uh, families. Um, but the response to this was that this really violates deep uh, values within this particular community. That it's because they come from a particular social background that you're invested in. Yes. Sorry, I'm not familiar with the case. Could you just tell Oh, okay, okay. So, uh, Stephen Lawrence was, of course, a young black man in the early 90s who was murdered by, uh, I think, three young white uh, guys. And the police initially... Uh, did not diagnose the issue as being a racially motivated uh, incident, uh, properly, at least we are told. And their investigations into it uh, was rather shoddy, okay. uh, missing uh, key uh, uh, evidence. And the, families of, the family of the victim um, refused to accept the police's botched prosecutions and all that and made a lot of campaign against the police activity, which resulted in 1997 in a commission of inquiry, which said that the police had acted in a way that was institutionally racist. Not that the police were formally racist, but at least there were some norms, a culture within the police force, which meant that they treated people of certain uh, background differently. Okay. Um, so the point I'm making here is that even if the police could, uh, could prove to us that what they did was lawful and therefore takes that legitimation demand uh, box. There was the additional question about whether this was fair distributively, whether the way they treated the families, for example, sending in undercover uh, officers to, to surveil that, uh, that family was fair. Uh, so some of these questions arise in that. But I think the also important issue when we think about legitimacy in this sense is that it expands the explanatory value of the concept. So a lack of legitimacy is not only restricted to a, an issue of obeying or disobeying the law at a very micro level, but it has implications for organizational stability and change. So this particular instance, as we saw with even the NSA's uh, case, resulted in legislative changes, that because the police had acted Ill illegitimately, uh, some of these uh, 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 followed. Okay, so just bringing it to, to, to an end. 
course, I've gone beyond an hour, right? <laughs> uh, Oh, okay. Okay. Excellent. All right. So, um, the point I've been trying to make is that um, this notion of basic legitimation demand, I think, offers us uh, some opportunity to build on what we currently know. But there's also, I think, some important additional issues for us to uh, bear in mind. One is this distinction often made between normative and empirical uh, legitimacy. As social scientists, we tend to focus on this, uh, partly through Max Weber's influence, um, that legitimacy, the conditions for legitimacy, are those within that particular community or, or society. So if in all souls we agree that these are the basic legitimation demands for the police, that they are effective, that they are lawful, that they can discriminate uh, based on racial considerations, for example, or gender considerations. And uh, that would be sufficient to establish legitimacy to the extent that uh, that is the demands satisfied within that community. Of course, we know the dangers with this, relying exclusively on what happens within particular societies. So people argue that we should try to bridge the gap between the normative and the empirical. The normative mean uh, somehow we have some uh, benchmark uh, on the basis of which we try to judge the legitimacy or otherwise of police actions, for example, in different communities. And if you take the case of the EU or Europe, at least the European Human Rights Convention, might be your starting point as a kind of normative benchmark. Okay. So if the police do something I don't like, I think they violated my, my rights and the whole of England and Wales things, yes, what the police did is right. I could appeal to this higher normative uh, uh, power or authority for, for some sort of redress. And we know countless examples of people uh, having uh, done this. Of course, this notion of normative legitimacy is not some God-given uh, thing. It's, you could argue that it's somebody's empirical legitimacy, somebody's values that are being used to judge everyone else. Right? Uh, I'm sure we can have that, that discussion. The second issue is that I think we need some sort of, well, maybe not methodological innovation, but variation in the approach to legitimacy. I think we need more qualitative uh, studies. Um, not in terms of testing theories per se, but at least as the first step to developing some of these survey instruments. Let's go to Afghanistan or, or Ghana and, and engage with the people, interview them, do whatever qualitative methods we can, we can apply to understand what the basic legitimation demands of power are in the particular context. And we can then use that as the basis for building the survey instruments, if that is what we want to do. So this could be a first step. It could be sufficient on its own, or it could be the basis on which we develop survey instruments for uh, community uh, uh, studies. I think this is um, a useful approach, of course, because I've seen it. <laughs> but it also, I think, it leaves room for some sort of surprise, okay? Uh, rather than always using the same instrument across different contexts and people just telling us, what could they tell us? They could only tell us whether they agree or disagree. 
right? But if we were starting from bottom up to understand what is it, how do people perceive power? What are the expectations of power? What are the demands they make of power? It might emerge that they're not talking about even effectiveness. Maybe they're not even talking about lawfulness. It would be strange if they don't. But or they're talking about all these four demands plus something else that we, would have, we didn't have thought about. So I think there's some merit in doing that. There's also a, a merit in going beyond, but not, of course, abandoning uh, or jettisoning uh, perceptual studies and looking at official uh, statistics of some sort. Uh, of course, we know the problems with official statistics. Um, but I think uh, Eminifet, for example, has used some of these data uh, in trying to link legitimacy to uh, homicide rates across different uh, countries. And also, if you read a recent report uh, on the Ferguson Police Department by the Attorney General, uh, uh, what you find is that the police had actually kept data, very good data, it turns out, on the, the canine unit, the dogs that they used to try to uh, constrain people. And in analyzing the legitimacy of the, uh, the police department, the, one of the things they looked at is how the, the dogs are used across different racial uh, groups. And they conclude that in almost every case that the data were available, they were used against African Americans. Okay. And it's one of the bases for which the police department is literally being threatened that if you don't put your, your acts together, we're going to shut you down, essentially. All right. So there is room for us to do this. Uh, and actually, if you read Beetham's uh, book, he argues against uh, opinion data. I disagree with that. That uh, we shouldn't even use uh, survey data at all. We, could, we just rely on uh, some of this. But of course, uh, that's only half true. Uh, we could also try and do more of longitudinal studies to try to understand the life course of a police organization, for example, in terms of its legitimacy. Um, how does the police, or in fact, what works in repairing damage to police legitimacy? Um, and how does it work? So, for example, if a police organization like Ferguson is hit with these kind of troubles, how does it repair? What works in that particular case? What are the conditions that prevailed before uh, these things happened? Could we have predicted them based on data that we're probably collecting on, on effectiveness, on lawfulness, on distributive justice or uh, procedural justice? Um, so it will be interesting for us to, 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 to see how uh, uh, that uh, turns out if we were to pursue some of those um, studies. Of course, we are told that uh, the legitimacy of police is not just uh, informed by police-related variables. Okay. There are structural issues, social, political, economic uh, uh, conditions. Uh, but unfortunately, in most of the perceptual studies, when we measure gender, race, income levels, we only introduce them into our regression models as control variables. Okay. We don't really go beyond that to look at the structural conditions, the issue of social exclusion or otherwise and all the other uh, uh, factors that I think we could take a bit more seriously in the light of this uh, historical 
data or assertion. Okay. So, uh, just to reiterate, um, understanding legitimacy in terms of this continuous dialogue and the sort of demands that people make of power during this dialogue is a very, uh, I think it's a promising avenue for understanding um, a bit more than just everyday law-abiding behavior. It's room for us to do, uh, it offers the scope for us to do policy analysis in terms of legitimacy, to understand, as some have argued recently, uh, how uh, crime policy is made within particular contexts. And of course, in the same way that um, at the end of this talk, there will be a lot of dialogues going on, conversations going on. They are all different. And globally, um, uh, there will be different dialogues going on within different uh, contexts. Uh, so legitimacy as a dialogue offers us a useful opportunity to, to understand the nature uh, and the meaning of legitimacy within particular contexts. And these might be different across different uh, uh, contexts. Right. Thank you very much for your time. Mm -hmm.